Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Um, quick vote. Do you want to see the slides that I made, or should we just keep running that uh, slideshow of the babies? There were three or four photos of uh, Rosalie we didn't get to, so if you want those, just talk to Shannon later. Um, but as you, as you saw in that dedication earlier, yeah, my wife and I have a seven-month-old Rosalie, and she's, she's great. It's been really... Uh, hard and beautiful seven months in our, in our lives. Um, and we try to be those parents who, you know, we always talk about before having kids, like we don't want having a, a kid to slow us down or, or make us uncool or any of that kind of thing. But I'm starting to realize why having a kid just kind of makes you uncool. Uh, my dad's here. Sorry, dad, but uh, you're definitely a cool dad. Um, but but seriously, before having a baby, I would kind of always be up to date on new restaurants or cocktail bars opening up or, or coffee shops in the city, right? People would ask me, where should we go? We're in Chicago for a night. I'd tell them a, a list of places. Shannon and I, of course, love a good night out. Um, so I'd get reservations or we'd go out on dates or, or whatever. And, and it was great. I do. Def- that's one thing I miss um, about, about not being a dad. But, but now, you know, we just have to be uh, a little little more intentional when we want to go out or have a date together, right? We have to find someone to watch Rosalie. And uh, we have a date coming up this coming week, and I'm really excited. We got confirmation from a babysitter a few days ago, and, and right when Shannon said, oh, they're, they're able to do it this night, I was like, pulled out my phone, start dreaming about where we should go to eat, right? Back in the day, I wouldn't have had to do this, but I pulled up Google and and searched best new restaurants in Chicago, and all the cool places start popping up, right? You've got Rosemary, Daisy's, Kasama, all all these awesome places, but when I go to book a reservation, they've got nothing, right? So I'm like, okay, what about one of the classics that's been around a little while? We've got Girl and the Goat, or Bavette Steakhouse, or Boca. Well, even if I could get a reservation at one of those places, I probably can't afford it with this dang inflation. (laughs) This difficult experience of trying to find a dinner reservation reminded me of just what an amazing city we live in and how amazing the food scene is here. On a random Tuesday night in September, places are jam-packed with people visiting Chicago. Some people come here just for the food, right? Or local who just have their neighborhood spot that they love to frequent. Clearly, Chicagoans love good food. And it doesn't even have to be those expensive or impossible to get into places, right? Sometimes a $5 falafel pita from Salton's Market or the empanadas from Cafe Tola are as good as any three-course meal you can get, right? Or even better, Just throw some burgers on the grill in the backyard or invite some friends to get a picnic going on the beach on a nice summer day. I mean, who needs a fancy steakhouse when you've got Montrose Harbor? Come on. Good food and good drinks are a gift in and of themselves. But at the end of the day, I think there's something deeper. I think there's a deeper beauty in the way that food brings us together. We all long to find those deep, meaningful relationships. We look forward to Friday night dinners with friends or Sunday afternoon coffee dates with people we love. And yet, 
Eating alone is at an all-time high. It's a rising epidemic, not just in the U.S., but around the world. You know those single-portion meals that you can get in the freezer at the grocery store? Some people call them TV dinners. I don't know if that's still what they call them. That's what we called them where I'm from. Um, But TV dinner sales have risen every single year over the past two or three decades. Think about it. When was the last time that you went out to lunch with your coworkers instead of just eating at your desk? And this isn't just a preference thing, right? Studies show that eating alone as a pattern poses serious health risks, like higher likelihood for heart disease, strokes, and type 2 diabetes. Not only are there physical health issues, but eating alone has been linked to levels of emotional dissatisfaction and unhappiness. This has led the UK to design a pretty cool initiative that they have. I love the name. It's called The Big Lunch. And this initiative just encourages people to eat more meals together, even to pause in the middle of a long work day for a big lunch. Their research with the University of Oxford has shown increased levels of happiness, satisfaction, and well-being when people eat together regularly, whether it's a feast or just a snack. This sounds great, I'm sure, to many of us, but we're too busy, we're too tired to even know where to start. I found a little book called Eat and Nourish, which came out less than a year ago. That's where I got most of this research. And at the end of one of the chapters, the author Mary Albright says this. I found it really compelling. She says, Andy Andy Warhol once said, I want to start a chain of restaurants for other people who are like me. You get your food and then you take your tray into a booth and watch television. But with home and curbside delivery of Michelin-starred meals and streaming media, I think we've effectively achieved Warhol's dream if we want it. But there is a better way to live. What is this better way to live? What, what is this way that she's talking about and how do we practice it? I think it's more than just eating with others rather than eating alone, because in the Christian tradition, we call this way of life communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, depending on the local church that you're a part of. We usually call it communion around here, but whatever name you like to give it, what we deeply long for is not just good food to eat alone, but communion with one another and ultimately communion with God. So over the next three Sundays, starting today, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at this practice of communion, and we're going to use those names that I just mentioned to guide our focus. Today, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Next week, Melissa is going to guide us through communion, communion with one another and communion with God. And I'll close week three by looking at the Eucharist, all right? Let's jump in this week with the Lord's Supper. Like all of us, Jesus loved good food and good drinks with his friends around the table. The very first miracle that Jesus performed was not healing the sick or giving sight to the blind, but saving a failing wedding feast by turning over a hundred gallons of water into wine. And we're not talking about two buck chuck or all day rosé, okay? This was the good stuff. Jesus is famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, for spending copious amounts of time at the table with tax collectors, prostitutes, and the other people that overly religious 
religious types like to call sinners. Jesus fed thousands with a couple loaves of bread and some fish. After his resurrection, there's this story about Jesus showing up uh, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they couldn't, they didn't know who he was. But when they gathered around the table and he broke bread for them, their eyes were opened and they recognized that it was Jesus. There's another great story where Jesus finds his disciples after his resurrection by the Sea of Galilee, so he cooks some breakfast for them. And then, of course, there's the story that we just read, the Last Supper. The last meal that Jesus shared with his friends is one of the central events of the Christian story. It has inspired countless pieces of art from Leonardo da Vinci to Salvador Dali. It was the center of gravity for the early church. But for many today, remembering the Last Supper of Jesus has been reduced to a little piece of bread or cracker and a sip of juice, right? How could something so powerful, so inspiring, so meaningful become this seemingly empty symbol? I think if I could put it simply, many of us have forgotten how to remember We've forgotten how to remember. Let's take a moment to just zero in on one verse. Luke 22, verse 19. This is going to be our guiding verse for the rest of our time together. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is so much packed into this one single sentence. And to start, I actually want to focus on the second half. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to ask two questions related to this idea of remembrance. First, what exactly are we supposed to remember? And second, how do we remember those things? So first, what, then how? When we look at the Passover, or sorry, the Last Supper, <laughs> we're going to see the Passover in the Last Supper, it's extremely important that we understand the context. It's, we can't just read it as a story that, that exists on its own. We have to see it where it fits in the whole bigger narrative of Scripture. Um, and as we read this passage, we clearly see that the Last Supper took place on Passover. For Jesus, his disciples, and the Jewish people, the Passover meal was a yearly celebration to remember Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. According to Exodus 12 and 13, I'm going to just give us a, a really, really brief picture of, of the original Passover. Here's um, some of the elements. I'm not going to be able to list everything. It's multiple chapters of the Bible, but um, here we go. So before they shared a meal together of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and roasted lamb, each Israelite household had to sacrifice an unblemished male lamb and smear its blood around the doorframe of their house, right? This blood over the doors was a way of setting the Israelites apart from the Egyptians where they were enslaved so that when God came to free them that night, God would see the blood on the, on the doors and pass over those homes as the firstborn in Egypt were being struck down. While this was happening that night, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, told Moses and Aaron that the Israelites were free to leave, and thus began the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. 
the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. So it's an understatement to say that the Passover is one of the most important events in Israel's history. If you have any Jewish friends or if you know any Jewish people today, they probably still celebrate the Passover because it remains one of probably the most widely observed Jewish holidays to this day and for good reason. Exodus 12.42 explains the significance for why the Israelites are to continue observing the Passover. It says, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So as Jesus gathers his disciples for their final Passover meal together, they are doing what they would have done every year at this time. They're eating a meal together. They're celebrating what God has done, remembering that God brought their people out of Israel and brought them out of oppression and slavery. God liberated them. But this is where things get a little interesting. As the disciples are enjoying their wine, feasting on roasted lamb, Jesus starts to say some confusing things. These were not normal things to say at Passover. Jesus breaks bread, which actually would have been normal. They didn't have Cutco knives back then. Um, you had to break it and share it with each other, right? So that's, that part's normal. But he breaks bread, he starts handing it out to them, and he says, this is my body given for you. He passes around a cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Essentially, to their bewilderment, Jesus begins to reveal to the disciples that he, that, that Passover, this, this moment that they're remembering, this Passover is ultimately about him. Rather than needing an unblemished lamb to sacrifice, Jesus wants them to see that he's offering himself as a sacrificial lamb for his people. Rather than marking their doorframes with blood, Jesus is inviting them to mark their very bodies, their whole selves, with the blood of the new Passover lamb. Hence why John the Baptist called Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or why the Apostle Paul would eventually remind the church in Corinth that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Jesus is both reminding the disciples of the Passover and revealing his identity as the new Passover lamb of God. So just like the disciples, each and every time that you or I receive the Lord's Supper, we are invited to remember the Passover. We remember the story of God's liberating power in freeing the Israelites from slavery, but we also remember that God can still liberate us from our bondage today. Scott McKnight, an author and theologian and Melissa's Old New Testament teacher, who we love and need to invite back, he says that the Lord's Supper, like Passover, is in fact a liberation meal given for an occupied people. When we remember the Passover at the communion table, we remember that our God can free us from the sin, from the sicknesses, from the systemic injustice that takes over our lives and, and the life of our world. So that's the first thing. There's so much more that could be said about that. But that's the first thing that we remember at, at the Lord's Supper. We remember Passover. 
Let's find the second thing that we remember at the Lord's Supper. We take this more simple, uh, more literal reading of Jesus' words when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is telling his disciples to gather for bread and wine around the table in remembrance of him. Jesus knows that humans are forgetful people. We need tangible, visible, physical reminders of God's love and God's presence in our lives. But remembering Jesus is not merely knowing that Jesus existed in history, right? To remember Jesus is to reflect on the whole story of Jesus and his work in the world, his miraculous yet underwhelming birth story, all these normal human moments in his life and all these surprising miraculous moments in his life, his baptism, fasting, temptation in the wilderness, him going away to pray in lonely places, working miracles like healing the sick, feeding the hungry, or my favorite, as you could tell, turning water into wine, right? Um, it means remembering this Jesus' death at the hands of the Roman Empire, remembering his bodily resurrection three days later, and remembering that he ascended to the heavens where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's remembering. And, and, and remembering means not only looking back to the things that Jesus has already done, but also looking forward to everything that Jesus promised to do in the future. But we also take seriously this promise that Jesus made in Matthew 28, 20, when he says, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. To remember Jesus is to not only be aware of the past or the future, but to become aware of the one who is always with us, present and active right here and right now. Now, with all this talk about remembering and thinking about the Passover and remembering Jesus and the Passover, you might be thinking, this all sounds great. I can't even remember what I had for dinner on Friday night, okay? If you were at my house, you'd remember the carne asada tacos that I made. Uh, they were a labor of love, but um, they, they went quick. But I, I get this. This, this, um, this. this way of thinking of remembrance or, or this language is, is a lot more complex than what we normally mean with the word remember, right? So that brings us to our second question, how? How do we actually practice this kind of remembrance? Well, first, we must remember in a holistic and integrated way rather than a compartmentalized way. It's so easy for us, right, to compartmentalize ourselves, to separate our minds from our bodies, from our spirits. We become disintegrated selves. In our day and age, especially when we talk about something like remembrance, we tend to prioritize our minds and neglect our bodies and spirits. In the words of the author Jamie Smith, we have reduced human beings to brains on a stick. But if our minds are really the most important part of us, if the intellect is really where the good stuff happens, then why didn't the disciples, why didn't Jesus just tell the disciples to think about him a lot? Why didn't he tell them to get together and talk about the memories they have of him? Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but Jesus didn't merely pass on words to memorize alone or song lyrics to sing in memory of him. It's 
no accident that Jesus chose physical, visible, tangible things like bread and wine and embodied actions like eating and drinking for us to do in remembrance of him. Scott McKnight, again, he just has this simple phrase where he calls the Lord's Supper an act of embodied remembrance. I love that. He just summarized everything I'm trying to say. It's not just a mental or or intellectual remembrance. It's embodied remembrance. Research like books from uh, The Body Keeps the Score and others show us that long after the mind has moved on, the body still remembers both positive experiences and traumatic ones, right? An obvious example of this is when a veteran with PTSD hears a loud noise and they immediately run for cover. Or maybe a more positive example of this is when you smell a familiar meal that your mom or dad used to make or when you hear that song that you you haven't heard since high school, and it just triggers those positive memories for you. Similarly, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying that whenever you break bread and drink wine with each other, with me as the host, with Jesus as the host, remember that I am with you. Remember the liberation that God brought to Israel and the liberation that you can find in my life, my death, my resurrection. Maybe a way to to give another example of this is whenever Shannon or I go away for a weekend or whenever we're apart from each other for a handful of days, you know, we try to check in on each other. How's it going? How are you doing? But we're not huge texters. We like to be present to the people that we're with. So sometimes a day can go by and we haven't really talked. But even on those days, we always make it a point to text each other before we go to bed. Hey, good night. I'm heading to bed. Long day. I love you, I miss you, I know, we're so romantic. Um, And as much as I appreciate those those texts, and I I know that they're true, uh, right? But there's nothing quite like that welcome home hug that I get at the airport when, when she picks me up, right? I know intellectually that when I'm away, we, we love each other, but there's, so, there's something just so much better when I get to experience that tangible, embodied reminder of our love for one another. She doesn't even have to say anything. It's just the embodied act that communicates what I know is true. That's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. In other words, to use a churchy word, it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. St. Augustine famously defined the sacraments as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Outward, visible sign of an inward, invisible grace. An outward, visible sign like a long hug after days spent away of an inward and invisible grace of of the love that's shared between two people. A visible sign like bread and wine around the table with community of invisible grace. Christ's broken body, Christ's blood poured out for our liberation. So we remember with our bodies. The Lord's Supper is an act of embodied remembrance. How else do we remember? This is my last point. We remember by doing something that sounds very theoretical, but we bring the past into the present. Theologian N.T. Wright says it much better than I could. 
The hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. We're invited as N.T. Wright says, to look at time in a different way. We don't merely look at a past story, but we bring that story into the present and, and we become a part of that story. In other words, we don't just remember the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, but we trust that this very moment that we're about to share together around this table is the Lord's Supper. Jesus is present here and now, once again, breaking bread and blessing it and handing it to us with those familiar words, this is my body given for you. We become part of the story. And just like the disciples surely had their confusion and questions, we will have our questions. I just imagine maybe, I wasn't there, but maybe the disciples saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? Your, your body? Your blood? How can this be? Thousands of years of church history with countless disagreements and divisions and we still can't explain exactly what is happening around the communion table. So yes, we will have our questions. And some of us more than others may want to really intellectualize and understand these things completely, but we can't. The Lord's Supper is a mystery. The, the word which would eventually translate into English as sacrament, is the New Testament Greek word mysterion, mystery. That's the word. Remembering in this fuller, deeper, confusing way, this kind of embodied remembrance that transcends linear time requires us to embrace mystery. It doesn't make it not true, but we may not be able to fully explain or understand it. But when we put aside the how can this be questions and embrace the mystery of the Lord's Supper, we don't need to fully understand exactly what's happening. We can simply taste and see that the Lord is good. We can allow ourselves to finally experience the communion that we all so desperately long for. The communion that we seek in our Friday dinners and our Sunday coffee dates, the communion we search for at lunch with coworkers or at picnics on the beach. And we may even begin to realize if, if the Spirit would help us open our eyes and see things as they really are in Christ, if we would let the Spirit make us present to the God who is always present with us, we may begin to realize that we're never actually eating alone. Let's pray together. God, we need your spirit to um, help us do this, this act of embodied remembrance. We can't will ourselves into thinking something or will ourselves into making this something, um, but we need you to spiritually be present to us, to spiritually move over um, this building and, and within this building and within each one of us to reveal your nearness. And not merely in a spiritual way, not merely in an intellectual way, but in this embodied way. We need your spirit to help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. 
To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.